Is it rolling, Bob? Talking Dylan. He's your host, Lucas Hare. He's your host, Kerry Shale. But on the digital Bob phone, he's our guest, country music Hall of Fame musician, Charlie McCoy. So beautiful, Charlie. Thank you so much and welcome. Obviously, you. you played on the original version of the song. I did. I did. And uh, yeah, and uh, it's my favorite melody that, that he wrote. It's interesting because it's, it's such a beautiful melody. And I've, uh, we've had this, uh, we've done over 50 episodes of, of this podcast. And some people have said it's a, it's a song that, you know, is angry at women, is, is unkind to women, and, uh, or that woman. Uh, and I always say, but it's so beautiful. The music is so beautiful. Yeah, I, I love that melody. Uh, you know, the night he showed us the song, I was really uh, taken by the melody. Yeah. Do you, what else do you remember about the, the the original recording? You played guitar on that, right? Not harmonica. Yeah. Uh, I was, uh, you know, my my career in Nashville, which is 59 years now as a studio musician, I'm known as a utility man. Because I play, you know, some several different instruments. Although without the harmonica, I never would have gotten the door, you know. So, but anyway, uh, yeah, I was playing some guitar. I did, uh, you know, I did trumpet on Everybody Must Get Stone. Mm-hmm. Played harmonica on uh, obviously Five Believers. I guess I'm the only one who ever played harmonica on a Dylan record, other than him. <laughs> yeah, now that you, th- yeah, absolutely, <laughs> that's right. And of course, I played. Guitar, uh, acoustic guitar on uh, Desolation Row. That, yeah. And and I know you play uh, vibraphone, you play organ, you play. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's uh, it's been a, an amazing ride and uh, I'm still working, you know. So in May, I'll, I'll celebrate 60 years of doing studio work. That's amazing. fantastic. So just going back to the beginning, just just very briefly, you're from West Virginia, is that right? Right. I was born in Southern West Virginia and uh, my little hometown, it was called Oak Hill. It has a dubious claim to fame. It is the town where Hank Williams was found dead in his car on New Year's Day, 1953, on his way to Canton, Ohio for a New Year's Day concert. He had a driver driving him. It was about six in the morning and they stopped for gas and the driver wanted some coffee and get something to eat, you know, because back in those days, we there were no uh, super highways, you know. There were no motorways. So everything, and West Virginia is all mountains. Hmm. So it, it was a tough ride from Knoxville overnight up to Canton. 
And so the, the driver stopped for, uh, you know, coffee and gas and uh, Hank didn't wake up. So they took him to the local hospital there, which is the same hospital I was born in. Then the local funeral home handled his body and they had it shipped back to Alabama, you know, where he was buried. And the, the owners of that funeral home were friends of my mother's. So how small was the town or, or large? Maybe between one and 2,000 people. And you, um, how long did you live there? I lived there, uh, well, when I was five years old, we moved six miles north to a smaller town, but it was the, uh, it was the county seat, the prefecture, no, wait a minute, that's French. County seat is like the main town in a commune or in a county. And so uh, my mother was a legal secretary, so the courthouse was there. So she went over, we went there because uh, she got a job there because my mom and dad split up when I was two years old. And my dad uh, had been in the Navy and he'd been stationed in Florida during World War II. And uh, he loved the weather and he loved Miami. And so after they split up, he moved to Miami. And But then uh, when I was in the second grade of school, I was eight years old, I became very sick. I got anemia. It was tough. The hard winter was hard. And uh, my mom and dad finally worked out a deal that I would live with my dad during school and come back to live with my mom on vacation. So that's what I did my entire school years. And I went back and forth between Miami, Florida and West Virginia. And then I left, I left Miami when I was 19 and moved to Nashville. <laughs> and the rest is history. <laughs> yeah. And how, where were you of, of Bob Dylan when you first got the call, uh, you know, when Bob Johnston well, called you? Of course, we're, I was working around the clock then. It was, Nashville was really, you know, there's mainly only two studios and a handful of musicians. And they were doing all the work and busy all the time, you know. And they let me join that group at 20 years old. And, uh, <laughs> and I, saw, I learned so much from those guys. Mm. But uh, I was aware of Dylan, you know, on the radio and, uh, you know, the the movement of the we called it the hippie movement in San Francisco had started. So we were aware of Haight-Ashbury and uh, the Fillmore. And, you know, we were aware of all those things. But, you know, I, I didn't think that much about it because uh, I was working around the clock and I was a huge fan of Motown and my radio in my car was on top 40 radio because they played a lot of Motown music, mm -hmm. but no, I was aware. I don't know if you, if people know the story about how Bob Johnson came to be in this picture. Uh, Bob Johnson was a songwriter from Texas who was writing for the Elvis Presley music group. And uh, he was trying to get his songs in Elvis movies. So he called me, this is a couple years before he called me, uh, like 1963, maybe, he introduced himself and said, I want someone who can lead demo sessions for me. I need to make some great demos to get my songs in Elvis movies. And I said, sure, we can do that. You know, so I got Kenny Buttry and Wayne Moss and uh, Pig Robbins. You know, we had a great group. So we made, uh, we probably four or five different times, Bob Johnson came to Nashville and we recorded these songs for Elvis movies. Well, the ones that didn't get in the movies, 
he would take them around to other record companies. So he happened to be in New York at Columbia Records talking to the head of A&R and played him some of his songs. And the guy asked him, he said, these demos are great. Where did you make these? He said, in Nashville. He said, and here's the magic word. He said, did you produce these? Uh, he was quick. He said, uh, yes. <laughs> you, you, you think you'd like to be a record producer? Yes. <laughs> well, we have an artist on the last session of her contract. And if uh, she does not uh, have anything happen, they're going to drop her from the record label. You'd think you'd like to try a session with her. And he said, yes. Who is it? Patty Page, who was a very well-known and successful artist in America, yeah. you know. Mm -hmm. So he was, a, I give him credit. He, he took this opportunity. He was a smart guy. He called his contacts with the Elvis Presley group in Los Angeles. They found a movie that had a theme song that needed recorded. So he calls me and he said, book the band. I'm recording Patty Page. So we went in and recorded a song called Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte, which was a hit. And all of a sudden, now Columbia Records thinks, hey, we have found our man. So they said, how would you like to produce Bob Dylan? And he said, yes. <laughs> yeah. There's a theme so, running through this. <laughs> so he moved to New York. He got an apartment in New York. And he told me, if you ever come up here, I can get you Broadway tickets. Okay. 1964, the World's Fair was in New York. I was going up to go to the World's Fair. When I got to New York, I called Bob Johnson. I said, hey, I'm in town. How, how about my Broadway tickets? <laughs> he <laughs> said, no problem. But first, would you come over to Columbia Studio this afternoon? I'd like you to meet Bob Dylan. So I said, Okay. Yes. So I went over there, he introduced me to Dylan, and Dylan said, "What? Well, I'm getting ready to record a song. Why don't you get that extra guitar over there and play along on it? And it was Desolation Row. And it was an 11-minute song. It was just Dylan and me and a bass player. And I'm playing all the lead and all the fills, and I felt quite overwhelmed, really, you know. Anyway, we did one take. We listened to it once. We did one more take. And the session was over because the bass player had another session to go to. So that was it. Mm -hmm. So I said, oh, okay, that was fun. And then uh, later, toward the end of that year, 1965, he calls me, book the guys, I'm bringing Dylan to Nashville. Really? Yeah. And uh, he told me who he wanted, you know. Okay, no problem there. And uh, then he said, by the way, I was using you for bait. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? He said, well, the idea of coming to Nashville was not, Dylan didn't accept it very well, nor did his manager. But after that session, Desolation Row, he decided to give it a try. So, so he yeah, came he and we changed did. the course of popular music, Charlie, by being so brilliant. Yeah. Well, not only that, but uh, of course, Blonde on Blonde was, I guess that was his biggest album. Just before we get to Blonde on Blonde, you were both aware of each other, you you and Dylan. I mean, you, I mean, Dylan had heard, um, I think, Harpoon Man, one of your recordings. Yeah, he'd heard one of my one of my records that didn't sell. 
Yeah. And you'd played yeah. on and the previous year, I think late 64, which was released in 65, you'd played on the Johnny Cash album, Orange Blossom Special, which has, what, three Dylan covers on it? So you'd played on It Ain't Me, Babe, and Mama, You've Been On My Mind and things. So you must have had a bit of Dylan flowing through your veins before you met him. Yeah, uh, because uh, before that, I got called by Johnny Cash's Columbia Records, you know, the head of the guy, the Nashville producer, his secretary called me and said, Johnny Cash wants to know if you can play harmonica like Bob Dylan. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I said, yes. <laughs> <laughs> we, in Nashville, we, we say yes and figure it out. Yeah. You know? And uh, went in and we did It Ain't Me, Babe. Mm. So what do you uh, make, I've been meaning to ask you, Charlie, actually, what do you make of Dylan's harmonica style? I mean, I know yours is very complex and beautiful. I know nothing about harmonica, but when you first heard it, presumably before you met Dylan, what, or even in the studio, what, how does it speak to you? What, what do you have to say about it? Well, you know, it's, uh, it's interesting because the notes, I mean, I could teach my wife to play some of those things in two minutes, mm-hmm. but he believes it and he makes it work. And I've tried to do it and, I don't, it doesn't sound as good with me as it does with him on his music. You know what I mean? It's a specialty. It really is. Although technically very easy. There's a, there's a thought process and, and it it all goes together. And, uh, you know, it's, it's special. It really is. Yeah, I, th- I thought you might say that because it does seem like it, he he gets the emo- the emotion and the simplicity, and you know he's done some very long solos, and you're, you're when you listen to them, to me, you're you're there because somehow you're in his head even more clearly than when he's singing, you know, because it's just these yeah. one, one note at a time. You don't know where he's going to go next. And then I got to play harmonica on this song, obviously Five Believers. Mm. Mm. And the riff on it was not his style. Plus, he was singing the whole time, you know, so he couldn't be doing both. And uh, so I was uh, I was pleased to play harmonica on that song. And you got a kind yeah, of Chicago blues vibe on that as well, haven't yeah. you, with Robbie Robertson? And, and, and Dylan's harmonica playing is, was not Chicago blues style. I mean, there's something else going on uh, stylistically yeah. in that. Yeah. Well, you know, when I moved to Nashville, I was a blues player. My fir- The first real big hit I played on was Candyman by Roy Orbison, which was nothing but blues. But I realized that, uh, you know, if I'm going to stick around in this town, I got to learn something else. And I got into country music big time. I started listening to country instruments, copying what they did, fiddle, dobro, steel guitar. And uh, also I bought into the old Nashville thing. The singer and the song are the picture. We are the frame. Our job is to frame the picture, not to distract from it. And if you're going to do studio work in Nashville, you better buy into that. Because if you don't, you won't get much work. Just just going back to Desolation Road, just briefly. I mean, what did you, it all happened so fast, right? You just shown up to, to see Bob Johnson and meet Dylan. Once he starts singing and you're, you're, you're doing these fills, these brilliant fills, and, he's, and the lyrics... You know, early on, he says, uh, one hand is tied to the tightrope walker, the other is in his pants. These are really weird lyrics. I mean, <laughs> did, did, did that affect your your playing or did you just sort of let it flow over you or what did you make of it, you know? 
No, I was, uh, you know, I was kind of overwhelmed. Uh, you know, we had this, we have this Hall of Fame guitar player in Nashville named Grady Martin, who played on the song El Paso, which I think is one of the greatest pieces of session work I've ever heard. Yeah. And I was sitting there thinking, what would Grady do on this? You know, <laughs> you know uh, okay, I play guitar. I've played guitar almost as long as I've played harmonica. And of course, I've been in, around these great players in Nashville for four years now doing studio work. I knew where to play because that's my training, you know. And also the idea that it happened so fast, that didn't bother me because that's the way it happened in Nashville all the right. time. Right. You know, we were in the union. We had a clock. The, their job was our job. Okay, today you're going to do three or four songs you've never heard before and make the record because we didn't have any other kind of technology. You know, mm -hmm. got to do it all together in three hours. And that's the way we, that's the way they did it in Nashville. And so I was totally used to the to that kind of a pace. It's what we did every day. Mm. But you guys had something different when uh, in Nashville in, in February, was it 66, when, when Dylan arrived and the songs weren't finished? And then, and oh, then you got into yeah. playing things like Sad Old Lady of the Lowlands and Fourth Time Around. I and mean, that must have been a, a real 14 education. minutes long, <laughs> four o'clock in the morning. Whoa. <laughs> you know, and we were all like trying to, okay, how much coffee can you drink? <laughs> You don't want to go to sleep because they might say just any second, okay, let's go. And downstairs of the studio, there was a room with a ping pong table in it. I can't tell you how many games of ping pong we played that night trying to stay awake. But that, that was the first night. He shows up. I that was the first six. night. And we're thinking, my gosh, this is going to be, uh, this, is, this could get to be really. But then after that, it all started to go. The, what was the first thing you cut? Fourth time around. Sad Eyed Lady. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was Sad Eyed Lady at 4 a.m. So, <laughs> were you guys looking at each other at all? Uh, or were you, uh, you know, thinking, what is this guy on? What is going on? Well, it, we were all very surprised because it was so unlike a Nashville session. Number one, uh, <laughs> And and we were so tired, we weren't even thinking about this. We were on the clock. We were getting paid, you know, hmm. for that overtime. And it was a lot of overtime. But, no, we were all, we were thinking, man, uh, you know, it's going to be, if they wait so long and then we're, none of us, if, if we're all just too fried to do this, what that's not going to be good. So, and then we had, you know, we had Robbie Roberts in there. Mm -hmm. We had Al Cooper there. That helped because we were had lots of chats with those guys, you know. They were first time in Nashville. They were they were excited to be in Nashville, you know, and so that that was cool. I think I read that Robbie Robertson was a little intimidated by you guys because you were such fabulous musicians, and he was, you know, I think it was until he got to show a few of his blues licks that yeah, yeah, he showed what well, he was capable of. Well, we, I've seen that happen a lot. People come to town and. You know, they're intimidated because of the word goes out. Oh, you ought to hear what these guys can do in three hours. You know, <laughs> it's, it's uh, but the reputation was uh, it was earned because uh, they did it every day there. And, you know, Rolling Stone magazine used to talk about Nashville country music. Ah, it's assembly line music, cookie cutter music. 
all business and no art. Blonde on Blonde changed all that. And uh, here's what happened. After he came, the floodgates opened. The birds, Peter, Paul, and Mary, Joan Baez, Buffy St. Marie, Manhattan mm. Transfer, Gino Vanilli. I mean, it required more studios, and it gave a lot of work to more musicians. So it was a good thing. It was a great thing for Nashville. Mm. Two months after the recording of Blonde on Blonde, Charlie, in, I think, May 1966, you're in Nashville with Elvis Presley recording Tomorrow is a Long Time. Elvis only covered two or three Dylan tunes in his career. Did he ask you anything about your experiences working with Dylan? Nope. Was he nope. aware that you just worked with him two months earlier? I'm not sure. Uh, was that uh, was that the uh, movie soundtrack for uh, the spin out? I Aram think it was. Oh, I, I, I think it was spin out, but I'm not sure. But but the, spin out. Okay. It was the yeah. same, it's weirdly enough, it was May the 26th, 1966. It's the same day that Dylan was playing with Robbie Robertson and the Hawks in the Albert Hall and the Beatles were recording Yellow Submarine. Oh, and you were, okay. And you were doing Tomorrow's a Long Time. Do you play yeah. guitar on that or bass or what? On uh, Elvis? Tomorrow, on, tomorrow, yeah. on Elvis's Tomorrow is a Long Time because we were listening to it just today and, and we were trying to figure out which instrument you were on. Cause I suppose no I was on guitar if you didn't. If you didn't hear anything, <laughs> I never yeah. played bass for Elvis. Okay, I played nice. organ. I played vibes. I played guitar. And then I got to play a lot of harmonica, not a lot, mm. but harmonica. In the movie Frankie and Johnny, there's a song where he comes out of the casino and his girlfriend just dumped him. And he did a song called Hard Luck. Mm -hmm. That was me playing. Uh, mm. He also recorded High Heel Sneakers, uh, Big Boss Man. I had a big part on that. Watch Down my hand in Muddy Waters. Yeah. I had a big part on that too. And you uh, played and Wash then, My Hand in Muddy Waters with Charlie Rich already, hadn't you? So that, was, that yes. must have been the second time around. Yep. And then uh, he did a song called The Next Step is Love. I played organ on. I remember that. Wow. But, and then I got, I, went, I was on 13 total albums with Elvis. You know the song uh, Frankie and Johnny itself? The opening note, now you'll have to tell me if it's trumpet or trombone, but it sounds eerily like the beginning of Rainy Day Women. <laughs> and I'm guessing that's you on both of them, right? No, it was not. No. It was me on Rainy Day Women, but it wasn't me on the Frankie okay. and Johnny. Because it's the same lick. It's, it's fascinating. We did Frankie and Johnny in L.A. They flew us you... out to L.A. for that. Going back to Rainy Day Women, which is uh, an amazing <laughs> song and, and an amazing idea for a song. And can you, uh, well, yeah, can you take us, take us through that? That was, uh, yeah. that was later in the recording sessions, wasn't it? Bob Johnson came to me and he said, listen, late tonight, he wants to do a song with a Salvation Army band sound. And I said, you mean you want horns on it? He said, yeah, yeah. How about a trumpet and a trombone? I said, okay. You want the trumpet to be good? And he said, no, it's Salvation Army. I said, <laughs> I said okay, then I can play it. <laughs> And uh, I know a trombone player I can call in. So I called my buddy Wayne Butler. I don't know. I, it, was, it was late that night. He started running the song down and uh, all that laughter and all that, that was live. Mm. He told us all. He said, you guys party it up out there through this thing, you know. 
So it was it was quite unusual, especially for a Nashville recording. Yeah, because it doesn't sound anything like a any Nashville recording. And also, it doesn't sound like any Salvation Army band, because Salvation Army bands are usually kind of mournful and, you know, bumpa, yeah, oompa, oompa, oompa. I know. Oompa. So, well, it was just the horn thing. Uh, but <laughs> and there was, there's been a lot of controversy about it because you, it sounds like so much fun. And because the chorus is everybody must get stoned, a lot of people assumed that musicians were stoned or drunk. Absolutely or not. No, it was uh, not allowed <laughs> in Nashville studios. That's why my, some friends of mine, two guys from Muscle Shoals, David Briggs and Norbert Putnam, built a new studio. And they said to the, all the the hip, we called them at that time, the hippie artists, if you want to smoke your funny cigarette, you can record in our studio. And because of that, they got Buffy St. Marie, Joan Baez, uh, Neil Young. Uh, you know, they got a lot oh, of work really over there. I, I've yeah. never heard that. Yeah. Uh, that's really but, interesting. Uh, in the main places like Columbia Records, which is the original mm. Bradley studio, and mm. RCAB, Absolutely not. I mean, what did you make of the of, of that song? You know, talking about the lyrics about everybody must get stoned. Uh, <laughs> we we thought it was a hoot. I mean, it, it was it was funny to us. We we thought it was very cool. Yeah, yeah it certainly and, does. It sounds like having such a good time. Uh, speaking of Nashville, speaking of the Nashville Cats, you know the John Sebastian song about presumably about you guys. Did did you? That came out like I think the next year, '67. Are, are you familiar with it, Nashville Cats? W which song is that? Nashville Cats. Oh Model yeah, of course. Place smooth. Yeah, 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 yeah. John Sebastian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he. That's. I remember when I heard that, I thought, "Who are these Nashville Cats?" Because I was a, you know, I was just a young kid. I didn't. I thought it was a very catchy song, but it was only years yeah. later I realized it was by you and your friends. Mm. Well, listen, uh, we have a cat, and his name is Nash. <laughs> and, and we bring him to Florida with us in the winter, you know, and I tell all my friends, his name is Nash. He's a Nashville cat. All right. And I'll tell yeah. you, uh, here's an interesting thing that you guys probably don't know. Chris Christopherson had come to Nashville. Nobody knew who he was. He came, he signed a, con a songwriting deal. But in the meantime, he needed to work. And none of us knew this guy's a Rhodes Scholar. He's a helicopter pilot. He took a job as the janitor at Columbia Studios. So one of the nights during Blonde on Blonde, I ran into him in the hallway, and he said, man, you think they'd let me just come in there and, you know, be a fly on the wall and just listen for a couple minutes? And I said, yeah, but just being like a mouse, you know, don't say a word. It just be an anonymous in there. And he did. He came in and, and later on, I thought, wow, that was Chris Christopher's, you know, when he, when all of a sudden, when he became so mm. huge, he wanted to come in and listen to the Dylan session. That was very cool. Yeah. Sure, who wouldn't? I mean, did you end up working with him when he, you know, when he was Chris Christopherson? Yeah. Yeah. No, I played, we were on the same record label too. So yeah, right. I played on a, a good number of his sessions. And, and just in case, just because that we're, we're, Straight slightly from Dylan. I've I've read your um your memoir, and uh, there is one session, a Leonard Cohen session, that um you you tell a story about. Uh, I've just got to ask you about that. Or can you can you elucidate us? Okay, so uh, Bob Johnson calls me and he said, 
hire the band. I'm bringing Leonard Cohen to town. We're going to work two sessions for like three nights in a row. So we had standards starting in stop times in Nashville at the time. And so a session would start at 6 p.m. and it ended at 9. Then it would start back up at 10 p.m. and go to 1 a.m. Now, not many people did that because it was you got into overtime, you know, premium overtime after midnight. But he said, yeah, this guy's Leonard, uh, Leonard Cohen. He's from Canada, and he's like a poet, you know. Okay. So we come in. We record a track. It comes to the break, and Bob Johnson said, to all the guys, we're going to go over to a Irish pub, and I want to buy everyone a drink. And I said, Bob, we don't drink on sessions. He said, no, it's okay. I'm the producer, and I'm saying it's okay. So finally, it was, oh, okay. So we go over to this place, and I had a beer, and Pig Robbins had one of these drinks called a, what was it called? A leprechaun, and it was lethal, too. So... We go back to the studio at 10 p.m. And Bob, after a few minutes, he comes out and he said, Leonard wants you all to sing on the track we just made. Okay, so we got up there. The Us musicians are trying to sing. And Pig, who was really feeling his oats, he couldn't, he kept getting tickled and kept laughing. And you know what happens when one starts, it, it's it's mm. infectious, you know. So finally, after about 20 minutes of this, we couldn't get this song done. And that's why we don't drink on session. And <laughs> finally, Leonard comes out and he's, and Bob is out there talking to us. So Leonard comes out and he said, I want these people gone. And he fired the whole band right on the spot. I've never been fired from a session in my life. You know, none of us had. And we were feeling terrible. And Leonard went back in the control room and Bob Johnson said to us, he said, look, guys, don't worry about it. You're going to get paid anyway. And I said, uh, we don't care if we get paid. This was a huge mistake. No, go ahead. So everyone's packing up, you know. You sober up real quick when something like that happens, right? Mm -hmm. So we're all packing up. We're feeling awful, you know. And Bob Johnson comes to me and he said, he wants you to come back tomorrow night. And I said, uh, and do what? Play bass. Okay. So with Leonard was this guy named Zimmerman, and he called him Zim. And uh, later found out that Zimmerman was a banker from Toronto. And I had a notion he may have loaned Leonard a bunch of money and Leonard was letting him hang around with him because Zim played the Jews harp. He had a whole bandana, like a Willie Nelson looking bandana full of different size Jews harps. Right. And he was in a three piece suit. I mean, this whole thing is surreal. You know what I mean? <laughs> so I come back that next night, I come in and all the lights are out in the studio. There's one little candle burning and I almost trip over a divider, you know, I've got a bass in one hand and my harmonica's in the other. And it takes a second for my eyes to get used to the dark. And here's Leonard over there singing. And doesn't even notice I come in, you know. So I go over, I hook up my bass. 
and I go in the control room and Bob Johnson said to me, learn this song. When he's ready, we're going to record it. I said, oh, okay. So I'm listening and uh, it was pretty easy and I, I, I got it. So we're in there and all of a sudden, Zim jumps up out of the seat and said, oh my God, I feel like playing. And he heads for the studio and Bob Johnson looks at me and he said, uh, I guess they're ready. So, okay. So I go out, I put on my headphones, get my bass. We start to play this song. Leonard keeps messing it up. 20, 30 seconds in it, he messes it up. And this goes on for 20 or 30 minutes. And finally he says, and his voice is real loud in the headphones with a lot of reverb on it. And he's got a deep voice. Yeah. And he says, Zim, I guess it's time. He gets up, puts his guitar down, opens his guitar case and pulls a whip out of this case. Like you whip? Yeah, what, yeah like you'd yeah, whip okay. a horse with. He hands this whip to Zim and turns his back. And Zim hits him four or five times with this whip. Then he hands it to Leonard and turns his back. And I'm watching all this and I'm thinking, <laughs> he is not going to hit me with this whip. So I've got this bass by the neck. I've unplugged it so it would be free to swing. <laughs> and, and then he starts beating his own back and shouting, Out, devil! <laughs> and all of a sudden... He stops and looks me right in the eye and he says, how about you? And I said, I don't know about you, but I played the hell out of my part. And he said, well, okay then. <laughs> so that's the weirdest thing that ever happened on a session. That's Unfortunately, nobody that was there can corroborate my story. They're, they're all gone. Leonard, Sim, mm -hmm. Bob Johnson and the engineer and the backup engineer, they're all gone. So. Well, I believe you, but it's yeah, my story you. You and I'm sticking to up. it. You yeah. couldn't make that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So then, so yeah. Charlie, so just going back to Dylan, this album I'm holding in my hand was, was next John Wesley Harding. Mm -hmm. um, you're really, I mean, apart from Pete Drake on the last two songs, it's just you, Kenny Buttry and Dylan in what, three, four days. Yep. And that's the whole album. It was so different. It's so different. Uh, Blonde and Blonde, I think I counted, it took us 39 hours to make Blonde and Blonde. And we made John Wesley Harding in nine and a half. Now, I know it was after his auto wreck, right? Mm -hmm, that's right. And it his seemed motorcycle like, accident. Yeah. It, it, it seemed like a, a real style change. It was more, uh, I don't know, it was simpler. And, uh, and plus, you know, we didn't have all the people there. It was just me and him and Kenny and, uh, it was uh, there was a lot of a lot of arrangement going on because mm -hmm. uh, it was bass and drums, you know. We're... What did you make of him as a as a person? Because uh, it, the music is so different, and you know we all know kind of what he was like back uh, in '66 with the you know people say he was up doing amphetamines and he was, you know, he was a wild and crazy guy. And uh, but when he came back, he was a family man living, you know, in upstate New York. But what did you uh, make of him? Did you see a difference in, in his personality? Not really. Uh, yeah. His, you know, I think I think to begin with, Blonde and Blonde, he might have been a little apprehensive because he had no idea what was getting ready to happen. You know, 
how this was going to go with this room full of strange musicians. And he was, uh, he had very little to say, very little. And, you know, I was session leader. So my job is I'm the middleman between the artist, the band and the producer. I would go, he'd play a song and I'd go over and, okay, Bob, what would you think if we did this or that? And he would say, I don't know, man, what do you think? So I finally went to Bob Johnston and I said, Bob, I'm asking him opinions and he's not given me any. I don't think I'm going to ask him anymore. And if we do something <laughs> wrong, if if we do something wrong, hopefully he'll speak up. You know, and Bob Johnson said, OK, that sounds fine to me. Go ahead. So we had very, very little ever conversation. Yeah. And, that and it includes, was that way. It was that yeah. way also with Nashville Skyline. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And he didn't talk in in 67 when you did John Wesley Harding. He didn't talk about what he'd been doing all summer with, with the Hawks in the basement of Big Pink. Did that ever come up? No. Nope. Nope. I mean, you said Nashville Skyline, for instance, which is one of my favorite albums, and, and just because the vibe is so beautiful of, of the of the record. And uh, but something like, uh, say, uh, Country Pie, which just sounds like so much fun. I mean, yeah. were, were you getting a sense of fun from Dylan? Absolutely. But our favorite one was uh, Leg Lady Lay. To begin with, the drum, I've had many people swear that Kenny Buttry overdubbed because there's a there's a little percussion thing going along mm-hmm. along with his mm-hmm. playing. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. but he did it all at once. I was watching it, you know, because mm-hmm. I was quite amazed. And then the steel guitar by Pete Drake was magical on that song. Yeah. Really yeah. magical. Now, that was my favorite one on the, uh, you know, Nashville Skyline. Yeah, even that, there's Nashville Skyline Rag, of course, which is... Oh, yeah, uh, that, that was fun. That just, was a lot of know, fun. instrumental. So it was. I'm, I'm so glad you say that because, uh, you know, it just, it sounds, it sounds like fun. It sounds so mellow and just gorgeous. Uh, but but he still, he wouldn't, he, he only talked the music, huh? You never had a... Yep. No, a, there was a... Now, some of the, a couple of times, uh, Albert Grossman came with him. I think Albert, between songs, was pretty much bending his ear about things. You know, I don't know. But they were in the control room. But it was our, it was our, uh, it was the Nashville habit when they had a playback. Every musician went into the control room to hear the playback because, mm-hmm. Number one, it sounds much better in there. And uh, that's that's just what we did. So we would all go in there for the playback. But, of course, it was just me and Kenny then. <laughs> it got mm-hmm. pretty easy. And then Pete, when he was when he joined us, Pete Drake. That, that really makes sense. I remember when I was uh, when I was just starting out acting, and I've done a lot of acting on the radio, uh, which we had in Canada, where I'm from. And it's a thing that happened in Canada is that all the actors would go into the the into the control room and listen to the playback, and we right. would even be asked for our opinions. Uh, of course, that doesn't happen in any other. Well, I, I'm glad to hear it happened in Nashville. That's the only other place I've heard that the actual performers, you know, are part of the process. Yeah. In that, that well, way. you know, I, I directed music for. Uh, 17 years for a syndicated show in America called Hee Haw. And uh, Hee Haw was an interesting show in, in that the music was all done direct to videotape. There was no overdub, no mixing, nothing. What you hear is what you get. And 
when we had, we would have guests, two guest artists on every show. And then our cast did a lot of music and, uh, they would always send the art. Once they filmed the song, they would always send the artist in to the audio booth to watch because the sound was so much better. Yeah. How can you, yeah, make any decisions without hearing that? Yeah. I, in fact, uh, I heard, speaking of Grossman, who I, I'm a, he was always being described as a kind of a Saturnine presence, a kind of a dark figure. Um, I, I was doing uh, some research for this and uh, I read that uh, Grossman actually said to Johnston, back around the, uh, when he was doing Desolation Row. And Johnson said, you know, see, you know, this guy's from Nashville and uh, we should be going down yeah. to Nashville. And Grossman said, do not, you know, don't mention that again or you're fired. He was really <laughs> That's what I read. He said, you know, we got a winning formula here, New York musicians. That's what we do. So shut up. And uh, so Johnson was, you know, he was a tough guy. He didn't uh, take no for an answer. He, yeah, uh, well, like I said, Rolling Stone early on was not very fond of Nashville. You know, I guess they thought we ran around with no shoes on or something. I, I don't know. But think about this in the sixties, four of the biggest pop acts in America, Orbison, Everly's, Brenda Lee, Elvis did all their recording in Nashville. You know, yeah. I rest my case. <laughs> did you record with the Everly's? No, I never got to record with the Everly's. No. I did or with Orbison. Uh, yeah. You know, I played on, Two sessions and they were big. Candy Man, Pretty Woman. Yeah, right. And, and uh, also around the the late sixties. I mean, around about the 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 Nashville skyline. John Wesley Harding time. You, you, that's you on um, what's made Milwaukee famous. Jerry Lee Lewis. Yep, Jerry uh, Lee. You you got to play on Simon and Garfunkel's version of the Boxer. Yeah, I played on the Boxer, and then Paul took me up to New York to play on his first solo album, and we did a song called Papa Hobo. Oh, he went, he loved that bass harmonica. So I went up there and I think I spent uh, four hours on Papa Hobo because he kept changing his mind about what he wanted me to do. And then he didn't like the microphone. Then they changed the microphone and then he didn't like the part. Then we changed the part and then he didn't like this microphone either. I mean, I was, uh, that bass harmonica takes about five times as much wind as this little one does. But that time that session was over, I was tired. I mean, because he's the opposite of Dylan, isn't he? And that he's a kind of a perfectionist, or at least he just oh, wants yeah. to take after take after take. Because uh, when they were together, they came together when we did the boxer. And every time Garfunkel made a suggestion, it was almost like a recording. Paul would say, no, Artie, that won't work. That's... So I'm thinking, well, I know who the musical mind in this group is. And, <laughs> and hindsight prove, proves it because think of the hits he had and how different they all were. Mm -hmm. It was a, incredible what he did. Yeah, you, and you, you've worked with, really, there's pretty much nobody you haven't worked with. I know that uh, uh, you, you worked with Ringo Starr, didn't you, on uh, Boku? I did, Blues. yeah. Mm. He was did that in Nashville in, or was that in L.A.? Nashville. Any, anything to tell about Ringo? We're both big uh, He was fans. so much fun, and he was, he was so thrilled about being in Nashville. He really loved it there, and uh, it was a whole lot of fun. Yeah. Well, uh, they always gave him a country song to sing, didn't they? The Beatles. Yeah. It was generally right. Carl yeah. Perkins or No, he, he told us, he said, listen, guys, I love country music. He said, I'm so proud to be here, you know. And there's a there's a Did phase you, when in in the sort of seventies and into into the early eighties where 
big country hits, if there's a little splash of harmonica on it, it's you. Whether it's Delta Dawn or He Stopped Loving Her Today or an American Trilogy by Mickey Newbury, you're on all of them, you know. And and like, I mean, you said, I know that He Stopped Loving Her Today by George Jones, you, you barely played on, but what you play is, is so, so economical and perfect. Well, that that's another funny story. So Billy Sherrill was a producer. Mm-hmm. And uh, so at the beginning of the session, uh, Pig Robbins was on piano, you know, who's blind. So Billy sat at the piano to play the song and George Jones was singing it. So, you know, and with Pig, you play it through once and he's got it. That's, that's it. The guy's like a genius, you know? Hmm. Uh, so they play the song through and, Billy gets up, and now while they're playing it, everybody in the room, all of us guys, are looking at each other like, oh, my gosh, this could be huge. You know, this song is so great. So Billy gets up, and he said, all right, I'm going to go in the control room. I want to hear you guys play it on mic. So he starts back, and all of a sudden he sees me. He forgot I was on the session. You know, his secretary does the hiring. He forgot they'd called me. And he stops, and he looks, and he said, uh, get something on the second verse. So that was, that was my construction. <laughs> get something on the second verse. I love it. Less is yeah. more. Could, could you always tell, could, how good were you at predicting hits? Like you, you played on um, Blue Velvet by Bobby Vinton. Did that seem like a hit at the time? It did. Oh, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm probably 50, 50, but two records I knew, I just knew was he stopped loving her today and pretty woman. Mm. There was no doubt in my mind that these mm. things were would be huge. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the first time anyone hears Pretty Woman. Yeah. And that's yeah. Wayne Moss on that as well, isn't it? Yeah, it was uh, big. The big sound was uh, three guitars playing that riff. Mm. Wayne Moss, Billy Sanford, and Jerry Kennedy. Right. And then Boots Randolph was playing it on tenor sax. And... After they'd run the song down and got ready to start running it on a microphone, Fred Foster came out to me and he said, I don't hear any harmonica on this song. What else can you do? And Boots Randolph was standing right there and he said, hey, I brought my baritone sax. Why don't you play a couple notes on it? And I, you know, I, I know where the notes are on a sax. So my big part on Pretty Woman was, Bob up, do 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 do. Bob up, do do do. That's all I did on the whole song. <laughs> but so often you've got the hook. I mean, like the the bass intro to Mohair Sam. That is that is the song. You know, that's absolutely the song. Speaking of bass, we still haven't touched on Self Portrait. I know there's probably I don't know if there's anything to say, but when he finally when you finally got to Self Portrait, all those classics that Dylan was bringing in, was he was he talking anymore? Uh, were you playing? He wasn't differently? there. We were overdubbing uh, on piano, guitar, demos. And what uh, I, what Kenny and I thought, okay, maybe Bob and Dylan have had a fallout. And Bob is doing one more album to keep the royalties coming. It's what it felt like to us. Yeah, it was, it was different, that's for sure. So, yeah, it wasn't, well, it, it can't be the same when he's not. So the last time you saw him was actually the end of Nashville Skyline. Or did you right. ever... And did you ever hook up with him again professionally? Never saw him again. Never, <laughs> never even passed him. Nope. Yeah, in the hallway. Uh-huh. Nope. <laughs> did, did you ever hear his uh, his Christian albums? I'm just wondering if they, you know, if they had any impact or were you, no, were you I, aware I never did. Or his Christmas album? 
No, nope. you know, he did a Christmas album <clears throat> a few years ago. I'm not recommending it. I'm not <laughs> oh. recommending it. <laughs> okay. I've got I've got one personal question. I've got an album that you played on, which I, I'd love to know the story behind this. It's by this group called Ween, 12 yeah, yeah. Golden Country Greats, right? And you played like everything on that album. You played every instrument you play. Yeah, um, uh, but those it, guys, uh, they were from Pennsylvania, two yeah. guys. They had this kind of a cult following. Uh, you know, this is when the internet was really rolling and uh, you could get on there and create a fan base, you know, without being on the radio so much. Mm-hmm. And, and, but these guys, they were two young guys and they really impressed all of us by how much they knew and cared about country music. They mm-hmm. really did. Now, some of these songs, uh, you know, the lyrics were a little bit, uh, coarse, shall I say? Yep. <laughs> but, uh, they knew what they were doing and, uh, they appreciated everything we did, and it, it, you know, the actual recording was a lot of fun. Well, that's interesting because I was wondering if, even if, if you guys were around, because some of the stuff is very explicit. Um, I and, know, uh, no, it was, yeah. uh, it was, uh, and and then they they did some live shows, and uh, I think one of the guys, uh, it might have been the steel player, said, "No, nah, I'm not going to do it. I don't want to go out on stage with all that profanity," you know. Mm-hmm. So. I, I never, I never was asked to be on a live show, so I never, I never did. But of course, you've performed a lot live. Uh, we've, we've seen you on uh, with uh, Area Code Six One Five. You're the, the the group that that you guys uh, played uh, in. That all your you and your mates played in. And uh, our one gig. Yeah, your gig. Well, I saw <laughs> we saw you on Johnny Cash. We've seen yeah, you right. on the. You know, it's on it's on YouTube. Yeah, mm. yeah, right. But. Uh, our only gig that we ever played was at the Fillmore West. We opened for Country Joe and the Fish. And uh, we played four nights there. And the the highlight of our shows there was that Linda Ronstadt sit in with us to sing two country songs. I mean, that was special. That was really special. Uh, was, I, don't, uh, I don't know that the San Francisco crowd went much for the area code. You know, we all looked like... <laughs> I guess we looked like we were from the South or something. Well, you had short hair and short hair, hair. Yeah. And, uh, mainly instrumental music and banjo, you know, banjo, we, fiddle, steel guitar. Just but, for the uh, listeners, Charlie, your most famous tune for area code six, one, five, you, uh, did oh, you give yeah. us a little dose of that? Get a little dose of that. so fun (laughs) (laughs) is it rolling bob talking dylan is recorded on zencaster stuck inside immobile engineered by mark langley smith and produced by robin guys digital imaging by finn guys music is by sam Hare. we're part of pantheon podcasts the music podcast network find us on twitter at is it rolling pod with your childhood flames on your midnight rug and your Spanish manners and your mother's drugs and your cowboy mouth and your curfew plugs. Who among them do you think could resist you? <laughs>